every story has an ending. And we don't always like to think about the endings because we know our own story and we, we wonder where it's headed. We wondered what will happen as I get toward the end of life? What will happen after I die? What will happen so that I die? And then after, does my life matter? Will it matter? Do, do my loved ones matter? And, and all the undercurrent behind all of that is, what if my life doesn't turn out the way that I want it to? We're dealing with an area this morning of endings. And uh, the biblical term in, in, uh, in seminary that you learn for this is the term eschatology, the study of last things, so to speak. Um, and it, inc- it includes not just like what's going to happen to the world at the end, but in a sense, this is what happens to us at the end as well, because every story does have an ending. And we don't necessarily like to think about the end, right? We like to think that we're going to have a glorious ending, but in the midst of the story, it often feels like we're not. Other stories and other ways of life besides Christians have different ways they tell the story. Some people say, well, you only live once and then the end and then that's it, right? And there's a couple of variations on that style of ending. One, on one extreme, you have the idea of it doesn't matter anyway because the universe is headed for uh, probably a heat death at some point in, 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 the, in the history of the universe. And as soon as the heat death of the universe happens, then everything stops anyway. And so nothing that happens between now and matters anyway because it all is going to stop. And who cares? On the other extreme, you have the idea that, well, we're just going to progress and get better, and technology is going to help us progress and get better until maybe we can escape this world and we can uh, get off of this world that's going to end and get out into the universe, which will last longer, and hopefully we can figure out a way of evolving to the point where we, in a sense, don't even need the universe somehow. And, uh, and so this is this idea that, that uh, somehow, inevitably... We're going to have a positive ending, whatever that ending may look like. We just don't know what it is yet. Those are two extremes for how to look at it without God or without an afterlife in that sense. In that sense, it doesn't matter what happens to you. It's what happens to us. There's other religions that have different versions of the end. In a sense, Hinduism has the idea that you have multiple lives. You live one life and the next life and the next life. And the the lives that you live are all based on karma and the karma that you had in the particular life you're in. And so if you are a particularly good person, you can get better and better, richer and richer, uh, greater and greater. If you're a bad person, you can get worse and worse until you might end up like a worm in the mud somehow. Buddhism takes that idea of multiple lives and trying, but it, but it says the end is nirvana. It's nothingness. That we would just get rid of all desire and all experience and just get to nothingness. Like if we could finally have some kind of end rather than endless lives repeating themselves over and over again. Islam is closer to Christianity in the sense that we have an end in sight, a paradise that we're looking forward to in a sense. But it's usually a paradise of fleshly, in that sense, male delights as to what uh, paradise looks like. 
reflecting that religion. You see, in all of these, you have the, 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 the challenge of sometimes the endings are negative. It's all going to be negative. And sometimes the endings are positive, like it's all going to turn out in the end. And as for us individually, in that sense, we all hope that we have a positive end in mind. We have something that we can look forward to and something that we can be proud of and something that we can look back on if we exist after our lives. That we can say, this mattered, this was important, this was good. But, but how do we know? Because every story does have an ending. And what that ending looked like, looks like matters. And as we get to the end of Joseph's story in Genesis 46, you're seeing the end not just of Joseph, but first of all of Jacob, his father, the one who wrestled with God, the one who doubted God and tricked his brother, the one who played favorites with his sons and his wives. This man, God still is involved with, and he's coming to the end of his story. And as we look at this story, the, the, the big idea that I want to get across as we look at Genesis 46 and 47 this morning is that the end of our story is based on God's promise of a nation whose home is with him. The end of our story is based on God's promise of a nation whose home is with him. And as we see that and as we're going to respond to that truth, by faith then we must now keep our eyes fixed on how we can use the push and pull of this present life to invest in that new glorious beginning. Because biblically, there, there is an end. Every story has an ending. But in God's story, that's, that ending is a new glorious beginning to a new story. And, and so we live in hope of this. We live in light of this. And as Christians, we need to understand that story. We need to understand how it contrasts with the, the other stories that are out there that people live by, that they seek to, to follow with their lives, that they like to say, well, this is what I'm trying to do with my life, uh, and I'm just going to die, and that's it. Or maybe yeah, I'm, it's all about my karma and how I'm going to, to, to live good in this life to benefit the next. Uh, we have, in my opinion, a better story that we can live by and live in. So let's look at Genesis 46, and first of all, notice we, sh we need to know God's promise of a nation. Know God's promise of a nation, Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, right? This is the end. Joseph has sent his brothers back, and now uh, his father Jacob is coming with his brothers back to Egypt to, to live with Joseph and be provided for by Joseph. And he comes to Beersheba, right? This is a kind of a famous location in Genesis where the, the, the fathers met with God. And this happens again. He came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am, the, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to, to carry him. 
They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Then it lists off the names, and I'm not going to do the names this morning, for sake of time, of course. That's the reason why. Skip down to verse 15. It says, all all together, that is, uh, Leah's sons and daughters numbered 33, and then the sons of Gad numbered 16, and the sons of Rachel numbered 14, and the sons of Dan numbered 7. Verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70 so here we have God's promise of a nation. First of all, one of the things you notice as you read the text is that Jacob and Israel are, are, are counterposed against each other. They're the same name for the same person. Jacob was renamed by God to be called Israel. And Israel is that sense of God's promise. It's his promise name. It's this, the nation that he's going to turn into and we here again see the echo of that promise once again that he's going to turn Jacob into this great nation that's called Israel. And at the same time, you have these two names put together in such a way. And, and you know, a lot of times people can change their names, right? In our, in our world today, they want to change their name for various reasons. And usually they want to leave the old name behind, right? Like, it's not, it's not who I am anymore. This is not my old identity. It's no longer who I am. Here, here what you see is, is God saying, this is all of who you are. And this is, this is all of who you are. And, and it's not just what you were in the past, but what I'm making you into, your new name that matters. And, and so you have, have these two names put together in such a way, right? He's saying Israel's headed down, and then God calls to, to Jacob, probably in a, in, a, in a dream, in a vision, in a sleep, Jacob, Jacob. And he's calling to mind to Jacob, Jacob, remember, I, I brought you out of, from your family. You tricked your brother. You... You headed up and you tricked your soon-to-be father-in-law and you, you got these wives and you wrestled with me. All of this in the midst of me still making promises to you. Jacob, I'm still with you. And it's a, it's a great consolation to realize in all of our weakness and all of our sins and all of our challenges and all the ways that we fail, God is still with us. God, God acknowledges who we are, and he has, a, even then, a still better plan for us. But here, specifically with Jacob, Jacob has a plan to turn Israel into a great nation. This, this promise of a nation is, is echoed not only in God's words and also in God's name for Jacob, but also in the number of people that are coming down. The, the, the author here idealizes it in a sense and says, I'm going to cut out certain people, I'm going to name certain people, because I want to get to the number 70. Okay? And he's saying there's 70 people that go down into Egypt, but I'm going to turn this 70 people into a nation. Now, in the, in the story of Genesis so far, you've, you've seen, we've seen Jacob's story, and it's, it's been contrasted with Esau's story and what happened with Esau. And in Genesis 34 and 35, it's already been shown that Esau has not only turned into a nation, but that he has kings, and, and there's like, there's pow, power base here. And 
This, this is a promise. By, by saying 70 like this, it's saying, okay, there's an ideal number that's going to start, but it's like a seed number that's going to be something that's going to go into completion because it's not really a nation yet. You can't call 70 people a nation. You can call them a tribe, maybe. Small village, you know. Uh, but, but God here is saying there is something that, that you can't see yet but I'm going to turn it into something great. And, and as we look at the, the ending, so to speak, what is the end? What, what's fascinating about this uh, is that God isn't just solely concerned with our individual end, nor is he only concerned with like the great grand end, like, okay, this is what happens to everybody, or this is what happens uh, in the great scheme of things. He's interested in a people that are his, that are his people, a nation whose God is the Lord. And you see this over in, in Scripture as well, because we see this nation develop in, in Moses, as Jed read earlier, and then David, and, and it becomes a nation that is great under Solomon, and then falls apart under the kings, and ultimately is sent into exile and in the midst of all of those things, God is like saying, okay, I've got Israel, but I'm going to make a new people. A new people who, who are not just based on ethnicity, but are based on a trust and a faith in me. And so ultimately what you see is God saying, the nation of Israel is going to continue. I'm going to keep its promises to, that I've made to it, but I'm also going to add in this, this new nation, this new people. And you see it in passages like 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, which says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you pro may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that last verse there, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament prophets where God is saying to Israel, look, you think you're so great because you're this nation that I made, but I'm going to use a people that aren't a nation and make them into a people to show you that it's about me and what I'm doing in the world and not what you think you are on your own. And he's, that's why he's saying, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And this, this group of people that Peter is talking to is the church. It's these people that God has called from every tribe and tongue and nation, not a people like the world thinks of peoples based on ethnicity or political background or, or drawing lines on a map. This is your nation. But we are a people of God, defined primarily by the fact that we have received mercy from God. Because that's what he says here. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is the Israelites. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has both made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's like, I'm bringing together the Israelites and the Gentiles into one new person, one new nation, so to speak, the church. Paul echoes that to the Philippians in Philippians 3, verse 20, where it says, For our citizenship, that is the country that we belong to, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here is one part of the picture about the end. And the end is God, God is forming this nation, this group of people that are his, that are his people. They are his people and he is their God. And he gives us this promise of a nation as a legacy. People that we can invest in that will last beyond our own lives, that we can be in this together. This is a, what's interesting about this is it's not just, okay, this is the legacy you have, Jacob, and that's it. But this is the legacy that you have going forward. The people that, that are a part of this, that you, are, you love and, and care about, they're a, they're a part of this. And so with the church as well, it's not just, okay, this generation and then the end. We're, we're always saying, God, is until Christ returns, there's always the next generation. There's always more people to invest in. There's always more people that are part of this great nation of God. And we look at this legacy, not as just simply, okay, I've lived my life, I'm done. My children will carry it on. But I am part of a people whose God is the Lord. That We have received mercy from God. And we'll be able to proclaim his excellencies and have more and more people, as we, as we look forward to his return, more and more people proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is not just our own children, but people, families, that will carry something forward by faith. By faith, we believe that this is the nation to see thrive. We not believe belong not only to a certain nation, most of us here would belong to the United States of America as our home nation. And our home nation is important. And God uses our nation in various ways, even as it was also weak and sinful at times. And we pray for our nation. It's not like we say, well, we forget our nation, our home nation that we're from. It doesn't matter at all. It's not that we do that. But at the same time, we say that the, the legacy that we have, the home that we really have, is the one where, that we're part of the nation whose God is the Lord, the one that will last forever. And even like the Jews here in Genesis 46, we might say, well, we're small, there's not many of us. But Jacob believed God when he took 70 people down to Egypt, and God said, I will make them into nation. We're not going to look around and say, look, let's make the church the force of the world. Let's, let's turn it into a political force. Let's, let's preserve our power because we don't believe in, in our power, but we believe in God's power to change hearts and to change lives and ultimately to change our world. And that's where the, the numbers don't matter. We look not so much at, okay, how many people do we have we look at whose we are. We are gods. 
And, but it does beg the question, even right here, what, what legacy are you focused on? Are you focused solely on your, your own legacy, or are you realizing that you're part of this greater people that you can be a part of, that you can invest in? What legacy are you leaving? Where are you investing your time and resources This is why Jesus in Matthew 28 said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There there is something that we can invest in, a legacy that we can focus on, that we can say this is worth passing on to the next generation, a care for all the nations of the world that more and more people might be disciples of Christ and follow him. Some of you maybe have focused on your legacy monetarily, like you've accumulated some wealth. God's given you that ability and that privilege, and, and you're saying my legacy is, is what I can pass on to the community or to my children and, and the wealth that I have. Some of you might be focused on, on uh, the, the, the family that you have and the legacy you're passing on with that family, the children and, and the, the home and, and the place that you have some of you might be focused on just your individual accomplishments. I've, I've, I've done this great thing with my life, and that's, that's great that I've done that, and I'm passing this on as a gift to the world in a sense. None of those are bad. But the legacy that God is focused on, the thing that he is focused on in the end, is this people, this nation, whose God is the Lord. And he's concerned about that and that primarily. And we see that not just in this promise of a nation, but we also see that in God's gracious provision of a place through Joseph, and therefore we should anticipate the same thing as well. Notice how the story goes, Genesis 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah... That is, Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him into Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. It's a long time since he's seen his father. It's a chance for him to both miss the years that he's missed And rejoice at finally being reunited once again. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from your youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Koshin, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So there's a little political maneuvering here going on. The land of Goshen is, in a sense, the best land, the best land for livestock, shall we say, right? But the Egyptians don't care for livestock keepers. They look down on livestock keepers. They look down on shepherds and herders. And, uh, and so there's this, this catch-22 in a sense of you don't deserve anything. You're just shepherds. And you're also Joseph's family. 
But actually, they want the land of Goshen. Do you get that, right? Like, the land of Goshen to the the Egyptians would be like, why be here? Let's be along the Nile. That's where everything grows. That's where we can, this constant river flux that happens. We can, it's always constant. It's always the same. Your wealth is guaranteed if you get along the, 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 the river Nile, right? But they want it. And so, and so there's this, in a sense, this negotiation. Notice verse six as they, or verse five as they talk to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your fathers and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. If you know any able men among them, let them put them in charge of my livestock." Then Joseph brought in his father. Jacob and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Can you just imagine? Like this old guy comes into Pharaoh, like this hick guy from hick country, right? Comes to Washington, D.C. to see the president, you know, with all his power. He shows up, he's this old guy, you know. Like, how old are you anyway? <laughs> you know, like he's lived a hard life. He's lived in Canaan. He's lived up, you know, he's lived amongst herds all his life. He probably looks old, you know. And Pharaoh's like, man, you've got to be old here. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of years, the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of my life and the days of, of, of their sojourning, of my father's sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph settled his brothers and his father and gave them possession of the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Here we see Joseph making sure that his family is provided for. That they're given the best of the land, not just in the sense of Egypt, but also for them as shepherds as well. He graciously knew it was good for them and gave them a place. And we see throughout Scripture that God provides for his people, not just uh, this in the sense of making them his people, but also preparing a place for them. You see that in, in Egypt, as, as Moses takes the people out of of Egypt, and now they're, now they're gone from 70 to, some estimates are 2 to 3 million people in 400 years. And, and Moses is like, God has prepared a, a place for us. The promised land, Canaan. Right? And Jesus, when he came, right, in John chapter 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am... You may be also, and you know the way to where you are going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, in, in the ending here, that there's a place that God has prepared for those who will trust him, who will, who will love him, who will follow him. But there's also a place prepared for those who will not do so. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, 
great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so you have, in a sense, two places prepared. The place Jesus is preparing for those who will trust him. The, the way the way in which is through him, Jesus himself. And you have the lake of fire prepared for those who will not trust in Jesus. And the difference between the two bound up in how we respond to Jesus. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants to give it to us as a gift, not something we can earn. This, this life is not a legacy like, oh, this based on what I've earned, this is what I get. It's a legacy of grace. Which place are you looking for? Which place is your home? By faith. If you trust in Jesus, it is this place that Christ has prepared for us. And in Revelation 22, verse 1, it gives us a little picture of this place that Jesus has prepared for us. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see him, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. This is the place that God has prepared for us. And, and what's, what's fascinating about this is that, that it echoes the beginning, right? Eden was a garden with the rivers around it, right? Where the tree of life was there, and God came into the garden every evening and walked with them. And here we see this mix of, in a sense, city and garden where, where there's a river, but it's one river flowing right out of the throne of God. Through the middle of the street of the city. But on either side you have the tr not just one tree of life, but evidently trees of life in a sense with 12 kinds of fruit yielding a fruit each month. Healing the nations. And, of course, we sinned. Genesis, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3 says, we, we, they were accursed because they rejected the garden and wanted to go their own way. But here it says, there will be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We will be with God, before God, enjoying God, enjoying God forever. There will be no, no more night there. This is true. This is the end. 
Not just a nation whose God is the Lord, but a nation who is at home with God in in the place that God has prepared for them. This is the home that they were ultimately looking for. You know, most of us probably love the home we live in. Some of us probably looking for a better one. But, you know, we have a home, and maybe it's an apartment, maybe it's a house. And, and you enjoy that home. You, 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 you live in it and you try to make it better. You know, my wife and I are working on a project right now to make one of our rooms better. And, and it's a lot of work, but we're getting there. Hopefully it'll be better than it was. You know how that goes. You're not always sure in the middle of a project. And, 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 you, and you love the space where you live. We, we love the trees around our house, even though we have to rake them every fall multiple times. But we still love it. This place that we live, but, but that is not my home, right? That is not my home. It's not where I'm going to permanently dwell. It's just a, a temporary stop to a place where Jesus has prepared for me. This, this ending that I look forward to is not based on how much I can accumulate and the house that I can buy at the end and how much I can enjoy in this life and then it's done. It finis. There's a better home prepared for me. One I could never earn. One I could never make with my hands. One I could never save up for. One I could never mortgage. This home is a home prepared by Jesus himself for me. And I know you go through life and you wonder, how's my story going to end? And what's, what's my legacy going to be? And how's it going to ha- happen? And, and you wonder, well, Man, the economy's getting bad. Inflation's pretty bad. My checkbook's getting smaller. My 401k is getting smaller. How is is this all going to work out? God has the story, and it's written in stone, permanently fixed. Christ died for us and rose again. And went to prepare a place for us. This is what we should anticipate. This is what we should think about as the end. Not as, oh, I'm going to live until I'm 70, 80, maybe 100. But no, my life is just, if I reach 70 or 80, it's just the start of a new beginning. Where I'm forever with God. And if that's true, if this is the end, this people whose God is the Lord and I'm with them and I'm enjoying God's presence and I have a home that's permanently mine, how should we live now? How should we live now? And I just put this as a conundrum, and you'll see the conundrum in just a minute. Expect the abundant wilderness life for now. Expect the abundant wilderness life for now. What do I mean by that? Well, just notice what happens in the story. Genesis 47. Genesis 47. It says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. 
And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So it's gotten so bad that there's no money left. Pharaoh owns all the money. <laughs> you get it? Right? He owns all the gold, all the silver, all the whatever else they use. Joseph's got it all for Pharaoh. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that all our money is spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. Then there's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food, and we with our land will be your servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have bought this day... I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is your seed, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your seed. Four-fifths shall be your own, a seed for the field and for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be the servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Joseph, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And we'll look at Jacob's death next. But what I want to emphasize here is what happens. Well, through the famine, the whole economy of Egypt changes, right? They sell them all the livestock. They sell them all the land. And it goes from being probably what would be more similar to what we would experience today, middle class, everybody, you know, you got some poor, some, some rich, have different amounts of land, different amounts of things. And it goes to basically a total dictatorship where Pharaoh owns all the land, all the people, all the livestock, it's all his. And why does that matter? You're like, oh, okay, he did it, so what? Well, there's always a push and pull, right? This is written not just to remind us of what happened to Joseph, but this is written to the Israelites who have now been just freed from slavery after 400 years. Joseph started off at the top. He owned everybody else along with Jacob. And, and it seemed like Israel did okay. They, they probably didn't sell their land. But over 400 years, what happened? Well, the Egyptians got jealous of the people who still owned land. The people who weren't slaves, who, who, had to, who didn't have to pay 20% every year to Pharaoh. And eventually, what goes around comes around, and they enslaved the Israelites. There's always, in human history, there's always a push and pull. People react to where they're at, and they say, I don't like this. And they get rid of one Lord, and they bring in another. And it's not necessarily better, it's just different. 
Everybody thinks it's good for a while until it's not. And then he's like, well, I want something different. And that's, that's the way human history goes. And that's, you know, it's ironic here because it's written to, to slaves who have been slaves in Egypt, but they're reminded, hey, once upon a time we were on top. <laughs> and now we're on the bottom, but we're being rescued by God again to be given our own land ultimately. But, but you see that the push and the pull of history. We, we live in an age where we see the same thing, right? One year the Democrats win, the next year the Republicans win. It just goes back and forth. And we live in a time where we're always thinking about, well, how do we make progress? If it just seems like there's push and pull, one side wins, the other side wins, but we never get anywhere. As Henry David Thoreau put it, most men live lives of quiet desperation, we want things to be better, but we can't figure out how. And sometimes we think we need to go back. Conservative progress oftentimes is getting back to a better time. Let's just go back. Let's go back to the, the 1950s or the 1920s or pick your favorite time in history that you want to go back to, that you want to get back to how that was because that was better. And progressive progress would say, no, we just need to get rid of everything in the past. Let's tear down the old statues. Let's get rid of everything in the past and let's remake ourselves into something totally new. But biblical history and biblical approach to life recognizes where we're at. It recognizes the push and pull and it's both more pessimistic than those who says, let's go back and it's more optimistic than say, those who let's go forward I ran across this quote. Again, it's about biblical eschatology. Biblical eschatology distinguishes itself from the historical ideologies of both the left and the right in two ways. It is more pessimistic and more optimistic. It is more pessimistic because the Bible provides no skyhook of ever-advancing progress by which we can haul ourselves up or any promise of inevitable revolution, like, okay, we're going to get there eventually the Bible doesn't provide that. Things do not have to get better over time. A reality to which the comforting ideologies of both left and right are gradually being forced to come to terms with today. Faced as we are with the combined assault of climate change, a string of financial crises, the economic and relational devastation of COVID, and from a Western point of view, the weakening of the U.S. and the inexorable rise of China. Like, like things just aren't going to get better. <laughs> But biblical eschatology is also more optimistic than its secular imitators on the left and the right. And not just by degrees, it is absurdly, outrageously more hopeful than liberal rationalism with its apparently unhinged belief that only is the salvation of the human species possible. Not only is that possible, but that contrary to all we read in the newspapers, it is an in principle already taken place. Biblical eschatology is neither straightforwardly optimistic nor unremittingly pessimistic, but both things at the top of their energy. We, we look at the world and say, it's going to fall apart. <laughs> it is. People are going to still act in heinous ways. They're going to destroy people, and that's going to make things worse for people. And at the same time, we believe that God is still in control, and he is going to set his king on his throne. And in the end, it's going to all be made right. And I go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into most marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is how Peter applies that. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This abundant wilderness life, we're not home yet. We're on our way home. And it's wilderness. There's push and pull to human history. There's ups and downs to political and economic life. There's ups and downs to all of life. But in the midst of all of those ups and downs, God says that he's just like he was with Jacob all the way into Egypt and God then took his people out of Egypt and was with them all the way to the promised land. God is with us even today in the wilderness, in all the things that are going on. And Peter here is saying, hey, look, just don't live for all the pleasures of the world, all the things that you can gain out of this life. Live for God. Live for glorifying God and living, understanding the end you're headed toward. Live honorably amongst the Gentiles, glorifying God with joy, even when people are speaking ill of you and evil of you. And you can read the rest of 1 Peter and see how he argues that. My point this morning is simply this. Will you believe God's promise? Some of you are at the start of your story. You're still writing the beginning lines. Some of you are more near the end. You're like, okay, how is this going to go? But God's end is still the most important one. He is going to leave a legacy in you and through you of people who love God. So the question comes back, who are you discipling? Who are you passing this on to, this legacy of God's love and God's grace in your life? Some people might say, well, young people, they don't want to be discipled. (laughs) Who cares what young people want? What does God want for them? How is that going to work? Because God wants them to know his, his end for them, the home that he has planned for them. What ways are you going to live, not for the push and pull of this present life? I, you know what? I, I'm sure you're probably wrestling with the results of the election, right? And wondering what's going to happen. And there's, there's good to that. But at the same time, God's in control. The push and pull of this present life is just waiting for the glorious new beginning that awaits our end. Because that's the beauty of biblical eschatology. A biblical ending is not just an end. It's the end is the start to a new beginning. So what are you looking for? What end are you anticipating? Some of you are probably like, well, it's pretty close now. I got to do some things. I got to make some things happen. Some of you are like, well, who cares about the end? I'm just starting. (laughs) Well, if you know the end, you can live in light of the end. And that's whether you're 8 or 80. You see, God's grace is not, again, it's not based on what we accomplish in this life. It's not about the legacy that we make for ourselves. 
It's about this legacy that God is doing in us and through us as we walk with him, as we take step after step with him, faithfully doing what he wants us to do on a day-to-day-to-day basis. Because we don't know the end. We, We know the end, but we don't know how we get there. God knows how we get there. And so we walk with him day after day after day, just like the Israelites in the wilderness. When he gets up and says, let's go, we go. When he says, hey, we stay, we stay. Why? Because we are walking with the God who knows how to get us to the end. I know this world puts pressure on you. Figure out your life. Figure out what you're going to do. Make sure your life matters. Make sure you can accomplish a lot. Make sure you can have a, a great retirement and you can have a great life and you can look back and say, I was great. God says, I got you. You're mine. I've got a plan for you. Trust me. I've got a legacy and a home prepared for you. Follow me. Will you do it? Will you keep your eyes fixed on him? Will you keep your eyes fixed on your permanent home? Oh, what a glorious day that's going to be. To see our Savior face to face and know his joy in us and see what God accomplished through us. Let's keep our eyes fixed on that. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can know the end, not how we get there, but the end you have planned for us. That in the midst of our lives, in the midst of the questions and doubts and concerns that we have, you are a faithful God, that you have this people you are making out of every tribe and tongue and nation people who are your people that are being prepared a place to live with you forever, to rejoice with you, to do good with you forever. And Lord, as we think about those that end, may we, in the midst of the push and pull of human history, Remind ourselves that you're still on your throne, that you have an end in mind, and we can walk with you there. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.